Our goal that sent me to sleep is to help the world get a good night's rest. Everyone deserves that. So if you're enjoying the show, please make sure that you've followed the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast player you use. And if you have a moment, review the show on Apple Podcasts. All of this helps the show reach new listeners. Thank you so much for your support. Good evening. In this episode, I'll be reading chapters 13 and 14 of Around the World in 80 Days by Jules Verne. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 13 The project was a bold one, full of difficulty, perhaps impracticable. Mr. Fogg was going to risk his life, or at least liberty, and therefore the success of his tour. But he did not hesitate, and he found in Sir Francis Cromarty an enthusiastic ally. As for Passapartout, he was ready for anything that might be proposed. His master's idea charmed him. He perceived a heart, a soul, under that icy exterior. He began to love Phileas Fogg. There remained the guide. What course would he adopt? Would he not take part with the Indians? In default of his assistance, it was necessary to be assured of his neutrality. Sir Francis frankly put the question to him. Officers, replied the guide, I am Parsi, and this woman is a Parsi. Command me as you will. Excellent, said Mr. Fogg. However, resumed the guide, it is certain not only that we shall risk our lives, but horrible torture if we are taken. That is foreseen, replied Mr. Fogg. I think we must wait till night before acting. I think so, said the guide. The worthy Indian then gave some account of the victim, who, he said, was a celebrated beauty of the Parsi race and the daughter of a wealthy Bombay merchant. She had received a thoroughly English education in that city and, from her manners and intelligence, would be thought a European. Her name was Uda. Left an orphan, she was married against her will to the old Raja of Bundelkund, and, knowing the fate that awaited her, she escaped 
was retaken and devoted by the Raja's relatives, who had interest in her death, to sacrifice from which it seemed she could not escape. The Parsi's native only confirmed Mr. Fogg and his companions in their generous design. It was decided that the guide should direct the elephant towards the pagoda of Pilaji, which he accordingly approached as quickly as possible. They halted, half an hour afterwards, in a copse, some five hundred feet from the pagoda, where they were well concealed, but they could hear the groans and cries of the fakirs distinctly. They then discussed the means of getting at the victim. The guide was familiar with the pagoda of Pelagi, in which, as he declared, the young woman was imprisoned. Could they enter any of its doors while the whole party of Indians was plunged in a drunken sleep? Or was it safer to attempt to make a hole in the walls? This could only be determined at the moment and the place themselves. It was certain that the abduction must be made that night, and not when, at break of day, the victim was led to her funeral pyre. Then no human intervention could save her. As soon as night fell, about six o'clock, they decided to make a reconnaissance around the pagoda. The cries of fakirs were just ceasing. The Indians were in the act of plunging themselves into the drunkenness caused by the liquid opium mingled with hemp, and it might be possible to slip between them to the temple itself. The Parsi, leading the others, noiselessly crept through the wood, and in ten minutes they found themselves on the banks of a small stream, whence, by the light of the resin torches, they perceived a pyre of wood, on the top of which lay the embalmed body of the Raja, which was to be burned with his wife. The pagoda, whose minarets loomed above the trees in the deepening dusk, stood a hundred steps away. Come, whispered the guide. He slipped more cautiously than ever through the bush, followed by his companions. The silence around was only broken by the low murmuring of the wind among the branches. Soon the Parsi stopped on the borders of the glade, which was lit up by the torches. The ground was covered by groups of the Indians, motionless in their drunken sleep. It seemed a battlefield strewn with the dead. Men, women and children lay together. In the background, among the trees, 
the pagoda of Pelagi loomed distinctly. Much to the guide's disappointment, the guards of the Raja, lighted by torches, were watching at the doors and marching to and fro with naked sabres. Probably the priests, too, were watching within. The Parsi, now convinced that it was impossible to force an entrance to the temple, advanced no further, but led his companions back again. Phileas Fogg and Sir Francis Comarty also saw that nothing could be attempted in that direction. They stopped and engaged in a whispered colloquy. It is only eight now, said the brigadier, and these guards may also go to sleep. It is not impossible, returned the Parsi. They lay down at the foot of the tree and waited. The time seemed long. The guide ever and anon left them to take an observation of the edge of the wood but the guards watched steadily by the glare of the torches, and a dim light crept through the window of the pagoda. They waited till midnight. No change took place among the guards, and it became apparent that their yielding to sleep could not be counted on. The other plan must be carried out, an opening in the walls of the pagoda must be made. It remained to ascertain whether the priests were watching by the side of their victim as astutely as were the soldiers at the door. After a last consultation, the guide announced that he was ready for the attempt and advanced, followed by the others. They took a roundabout way, so as to get at the pagoda on the rear. They reached the walls about half-past twelve, without having met anyone. Here there was no guard, nor were there either windows or doors. The night was dark, the moon on the wane scarcely left the horizon and was covered with heavy clouds. The height of the trees deepened the darkness. It was not enough to reach the walls. An opening in them must be accomplished, and to attain this purpose the party only had their pocket knives. Happily, the temple walls were built of brick and wood, which could be penetrated with little difficulty. After one brick had been taken out, the rest would yield easily. They set noiselessly to work, and the Parsi on one side and Passapartout on the other began to loosen the bricks so as to make an aperture two feet wide. They were getting on rapidly, when suddenly a cry was heard in the interior of the temple, 
followed almost instantly by other cries replying from the outside. Passapartout and the guide stopped. Had they been heard? Was the alarm being given? Common prudence urged them to retire, and they did so, followed by Phileas Fogg and Sir Francis. They again hid themselves in the wood and waited till the disturbance, whatever it might be, ceased, holding themselves ready to resume their attempt without delay. But, awkwardly enough, the guards now appeared at the rear of the temple, and there installed themselves in readiness to prevent a surprise. It would be difficult to describe the disappointment of the party, thus interrupted in their work. They could not now reach the victim. How, then, could they save her? Sir Francis shook his fists. Passapartout was beside himself, and the guide gnashed his teeth with rage. The tranquil fog waited without betraying any emotion. We have nothing to do but to go away, whispered Sir Francis. Nothing but go away, echoed the guide. Stop, said Fogg. I am only due a Talabad tomorrow before noon. But what can you hope to do? asked Francis. In a few hours it will be daylight, and the chance which now seems lost may present itself at the last moment. Sir Francis would have liked to read Phileas Fogg's eyes. What was this cool Englishman thinking of? Was he planning to make a rush for the young woman at the very moment of the sacrifice? and boldly snatch her from the executioners. This would be utter folly, and it was hard to admit that Fogg was such a fool. Sir Francis consented, however, to remain at the end of this terrible drama. The guide led them to the rear of the glade, where they were able to observe the sleeping group. Meanwhile, Passapartout, who had perched himself on the lower branches of the tree, was resolving an idea which had at first struck him like a flash, and which was now firmly lodged in his brain. He had commenced by saying to himself, What folly! And then he repeated, Why not? After all, it's a chance, perhaps the only one, and with such sots. Thinking thus, he slipped, with the suppleness of a serpent, to the lowest branches, the ends of which bent almost to the ground. The hours passed, and the lighter shades now announced the approach of day 
though it was not yet light. This was the moment. The slumbering multitude became animated. The tambourines sounded. Songs and cries arose. The hour of the sacrifice had come. The doors of the pagoda swung open, and a bright light escaped from its interior, in the midst of which Mr. Fogg and Sir Francis espied the victim. She seemed, having shaken off her stupor of intoxication, to be striving to escape from her executioner. Mr. Francis's heart throbbed, and, convulsively seizing Mr. Fogg's hand, found in it an open knife. Just at this moment the crowd began to move. The young woman had again fallen into a stupor caused by the fumes of hemp, and passed among the fakirs who escorted her with their wild, religious cries. Phileas Fogg and his companions, mingling in the rear ranks of the crowd, followed, and in two minutes they reached the banks of the stream, and stopped fifty paces from the pyre, upon which still lay the Raja's corpse. In the semi-obscurity they saw the victim, quite senseless, stretched out beside her husband's body. Then a torch was brought, and the wood, heavily soaked with oil, instantly took fire. At this moment Sir Francis and the guide seized Phileas Fogg, who, in an instant of mad generosity, was about to rush upon the pyre but he had quickly pushed them aside when the whole scene suddenly changed. A cry of terror arose. The whole multitude prostrated themselves, terror-stricken on the ground. The old Raja was not dead, then, since he rose of a sudden, like a spectre, took up his wife in his arms and descended from the pyre in the midst of the clouds of smoke which only heightened his ghostly appearance. Fakirs and soldiers and priests, seized with instant terror, lay there with their faces on the ground, not daring to lift their eyes and behold such a prodigy. The inanimate victim was borne along by the vigorous arms which supported her, and which she did not seem in the least to burden. Mr. Fogg and Sir Francis stood erect. The Parsi bowed his head, and Passapartout was, no doubt, scarcely less stupefied. The resuscitated Raja approached Sir Francis and Mr. Fogg, and, in an abrupt tone, said, Let us be off. It was Passapartout himself who had slipped 
looked upon the pyre in the midst of the smoke, and, profiting by the still overhanging darkness, had delivered the young woman from death. It was Passapartout who, playing his part with a happy audacity, had passed through the crowd amid the general terror. A moment after all four of the party had disappeared in the woods, the elephant was bearing them away at a rapid pace. But the cries and noise, and a ball which whizzed through Phileas Fogg's hat, apprised them that the trick had been discovered. The old Raja's body, indeed, now appeared upon the burning pyre, and the priests recovered from their terror, perceived that an abduction had taken place. They hastened into the forest, followed by the soldiers, who fired a volley after the fugitives. But the latter rapidly increased the distance between them, and ere long found themselves beyond the reach of the bullets and arrows. Chapter 14 The rash exploit had been accomplished, and for an hour Passapartout laughed gaily at his success. Sir Francis pressed the worthy fellow's hand, and his master said, Well done, which, from him, was high commendation, to which Passapartout replied that all the credit of the affair belonged to Mr. Fogg. As for him, he had only been struck with a queer idea, and he laughed to think that for a few moments he, Passapartout, the ex-gymnast, ex-sergeant fireman, had been the spouse of a charming woman, a venerable, embalmed Raja. As for the young Indian woman, she had been unconscious throughout what was passing and now, wrapped up in a travelling blanket, was reposing in one of the howders. The elephant, thanks to the skilful guidance of the Parsi, was advancing rapidly through the still darksome forest, and, an hour after leaving the pagoda, had crossed a vast plain. They made a halt at seven o'clock, the young woman being still in a state of complete prostration. The guide made her drink a little brandy and water, but the drowsiness which stupefied her could not yet be shaken off. Sir Francis, who was familiar with the effects of the intoxication produced by the fumes of hemp, reassured his companions on her account. But he was more disturbed at the prospect of her future fate. He told Phileas Fogg that, 
Should Uda remain in India, she would inevitably fall again into the hands of her executioners. These fanatics were scattered throughout the country, and would, despite the English police, recover their victim at Madras, Bombay, or Calcutta. She would only be safe by quitting India forever. Phileas Fogg replied that he would reflect upon the matter. The station at Allahabad was reached about ten o'clock, and, the interrupted line of railway being resumed, would enable them to reach Calcutta in less than twenty-four hours. Phileas Fogg would thus be able to arrive in time to take the steamer which left Calcutta the next day, October 25th, at noon, for Hong Kong. The young woman was placed in one of the waiting rooms of the station, whilst Passapartout was charged with purchasing for her various articles of toilet, a dress, shawl, and some furs, for which his master gave him unlimited credit. Passapartout started off forthwith, and found himself in the streets of Allahabad, that is, the City of God one of the most venerated in India, being built at the junction of the two sacred rivers, Ganges and Jumna, the waters of which attract pilgrims from every part of the peninsula. The Ganges, according to the legends of Ramayana, rises in the heavens, whence, owing to Brahma's agency, it descends to earth. Passapartout made it a point, as he made his purchases, to take a good look at the city. It was formerly defended by a noble fort, which has since become a state prison. Its commerce has dwindled away, and Passapartout in vain looked about him, for such a bazaar as he used to frequent in Regent Street. At last he came upon an elderly, crusty man, who sold second-hand articles, and from whom he purchased a dress of scotch stuff, a large mantle, and a fine otter-skin pelisse, for which he did not hesitate to pay seventy-five pounds. He then returned triumphantly to the station. The influence to which the priests of Pilaji had subjected Uda began gradually to yield, and she became more herself, so that her fine eyes resumed all their soft Indian expression. When the poet king Ukafudal celebrates the charms of the queen of Umenagara, he speaks thus. Her shining tresses, divided in two parts, encircle the harmonious contours of her white and delicate cheeks, 
brilliant in their glow and freshness. Her ebony brows have the form and charm of the bow of karma, the god of love, and beneath her long silken lashes the purest reflections and a celestial light swim, as in the sacred lakes of Himalaya, in the black pupils of her great clear eyes. Her teeth, fine, equal and white, glitter between her smiling lips like dewdrops in a passion flower's half-enveloped breast. Her delicately formed ears, her vermilion hands, her little feet, curved and tender as the lotus bud, glitter with brilliancy of the loveliest pearls of Cilion, the most dazzling diamonds of Golconda. Her narrow and supple waist, which a hand may clasp around, sets forth the outline of her rounded figure and the beauty of her bosom, where youth in its flower displays the wealth of its treasures, and beneath the silken folds of her tunic she seems to have been moulded in pure silver by the godlike hands of Vikvarkama, the immortal sculptor. It is enough to say, without applying this poetical rhapsody to Uda, that she was a charming woman, in all the European acceptation of the phrase. She spoke English with great purity, and the guide had not exaggerated in saying that the young Parsi had been transformed by her bringing up. The train was about to start from Alabad, and Mr. Fogg proceeded to pay the guide the price agreed upon for his service, and not a farthing more, which astonished Passapartout, who remembered all that his master owed to the guide's devotion. He had indeed risked his life in the adventure of Pilagi, and, if he should be caught afterwards by the Indians, he would have difficulty escaping their vengeance. Kiuni also must be disposed of. What should be done with the elephant which had been so dearly purchased? Phileas Fogg had already determined this question. Parsi, said he to the guide, you have been serviceable and devoted. I have paid for your service, but not for your devotion. Would you like to have this elephant? He is yours. The guide's eyes glistened. Your honour is giving me a fortune, cried he. Take him, guide, returned Mr. Fogg and I shall still be your debtor. Good, exclaimed Passapartout. Take him, friend. Kiuni is a brave and faithful beast, and, 
going up to the elephant, he gave him several sugar lumps, saying, Here, Keone, here, here. The elephant grunted out his satisfaction, and, clasping Passapartout around the waist with his trunk, lifted him as high as his head. Passapartout, not in the least alarmed, caressed the animal, which placed him gently on the ground. Soon after, Phileas Fogg, Sir Francis Cromarty, and Passapartout, installed in a carriage with Uda, who had the best seat, were whirling at full speed towards Benares. It was a run of eighty miles, and was accomplished in two hours. During the journey, the young woman fully recovered her senses. What was her astonishment to find herself in this carriage, on the railway, dressed in European habiliments, and with travellers who were quite strange to her. Her companions first set about fully reviving her with a little liquor, and then Sir Francis narrated to her what had passed, dwelling upon the courage with which Phileas Fogg had not hesitated to risk his life to save her, and recounting the happy sequel of the venture, the results of Passapartout's rash idea. Mr. Fogg said nothing, while Passapartout, abashed, kept repeating that it wasn't worth telling. Uda pathetically thanked her deliverers, rather with tears than words. Her fine eyes interpreted her gratitude better than her lips. Then, as her thoughts strayed back, to the scene of her sacrifice, and recalled the dangers which still menaced her, she shuddered with terror. Phileas Fogg understood what was passing in Uda's mind, and offered, in order to reassure her, to escort her to Hong Kong, where she might remain safely until the affair was hushed up an offer which she eagerly and gratefully accepted. She had, it seems, a Parsi relation, who was one of the principal merchants of Hong Kong, which is wholly an English city, though on an island on the Chinese coast. At half-past twelve, the train stopped at Benares. The Brahmin legends asserted that this city is built on the site of the ancient Kasi, which, like Mahomet's tomb, was once suspended between heaven and earth, though the Benares of today, which the Orientals call the Athens of India, stands quite unpoetically on the solid earth. Passapartout caught glimpses of its brick houses and clay huts, 
giving an aspect of desolation to the place as the train entered it. Benares was Sir Francis Cromarty's destination, the troops he was rejoining being encamped some miles northward of the city. He bade adieu to Phileas Fogg, wishing him all success, and expressing the hope that he would come that way again in a less original but more profitable fashion. Mr. Fogg lightly pressed him by the hand. The parting of Uda, who did not forget what she owed to Sir Francis, betrayed more warmth, and, as for Passapartout, he received a hearty shake of the hand from the gallant general. The railway, on leaving Benares, passed for a while along the valley of the Ganges. Through the windows of their carriage, the travellers had glimpses of the diversified landscape of Bihar, with its mountains clothed in verdure, its fields of barley, wheat and corn, its jungles peopled with green alligators, its neat villages, and its still thickly-leaved forests. Elephants were bathing in the waters of the sacred river, and groups of Indians, despite the advanced season and chilly air, were performing solemnly their pious ablutions. These were fervent Brahmins, the bitterest foes of Buddhism, their deities being Vishnu, the solar god, Shiva, the divine impersonation of natural forces, and Brahma, the supreme ruler of priests and legislators. What would these divinities think of India? Anglicised as it is today, with steamers whistling and scudding along the Ganges, frightening the gulls which float upon its surface, the turtles swarming along its banks, and the faithful dwelling upon its borders. The panorama passed before their eyes like a flash. Save when the steam concealed it fitfully from the view, the travellers could scarcely discern the fort Chupeni, twenty miles south-westward from Benares, the ancient stronghold of the Rajas of Bihar, or Ghazipur and its famous rose-water factories, or the tomb of Lord Cornwallis, rising on the left bank of the Ganges, the fortified town of Buxar, or Patna, a large manufacturing and trading place, where is held the principal opium market of India, or Mongir, a more than European town, for it is as English as Manchester or Birmingham with its iron foundries, edge-tall factories, and high chimneys puffing clouds of smoke heavenward. 
Night came on. The train passed on at full speed, in the midst of the roaring of the tigers, bears, and wolves which fled before the locomotive, and the marvels of Bengal, Golconda, ruined Gore, Murshidabad, the ancient capital, Birdwan, Hugli, and the French town of Chandanagar, where Passapartout would have been proud to see the country's flag flying, were hidden from their view in the darkness. Calcutta was reached at seven in the morning, and the packet left for Hong Kong at noon, so that Phileas Fogg had five hours before him. According to his journal, he was due at Calcutta on the 25th of October, and that was the exact date of his arrival. He was therefore neither behind hand nor ahead of time. The two days gained between London and Bombay had been lost, as had been seen in the journey across India. But it is not to be supposed that Phileas Fogg regretted them.